Good morning. If you have a Bible, would like to invite you to go ahead and open it up to that passage that was just read. It's John chapter 13, and we are going to be beginning in verse 18, going all the way through verse 30. Today we are continuing our sermon series uh, that is going to lead us up to Easter Sunday called The Last Night. The reason that we gave it that title is that John chapters 13 through 17 give us an in-depth look at the last night Jesus spent with his disciples. It's an incredible picture. If you've read the rest of the book of John, you know that, that both John, just like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they tell us all about the life of Jesus. And all of his life is leading up to this pinnacle of the very last 24 hours that we are reading about in these texts. It's an amazing picture. Jesus fully knew the anguish that awaited him over the course of the next hours. And yet we see him in these chapters, not focused on himself, but instead focused on loving and serving his disciples. He's providing his disciples everything that they will need for when he is going to depart and to be resurrected. And so that's what we see in these pictures. Now, as I said last week, the setting for chapter 13 is what we often call the Last Supper. When you hear those words, many of you probably have this picture in your mind, Leonardo da Vinci's work. But here's the thing, you need to get that picture out of your mind. That's actually not what it looked like. He wasn't there taking a photograph of Jesus kind of spread out on this nice table. They're all standing there with chairs underneath, looking happy. That's not really what the night would have looked like. Instead, it would have looked more like something like this. And I know it's dark, but it's, it's a group that is all sitting very close to the ground. The tables in those days weren't like ours where we have chairs and we sit under them. They were laying, lounging on the ground, reclining, leaning in on one another. This was a setting of deep intimacy and friendship. Jesus was close to his disciples and they were close to him, which makes what he says in chapter 13 so unexpected. This is a moment of love. Jesus has just displayed his love for the disciples. He has just washed their feet, a symbolic act of what he was about to do on the cross. He was about to humble himself totally and die for their sins. He pronounces, you, he's looking at his disciples, are clean because of what I'm about to do. Because of your trust in me, you are spiritually clean. You are mine. But then in verse 18, he says something that is so dramatic that it's meant to cause us to pause. He says something very crucial because in verse 18, if you look with me, he says this, I am not speaking of all of you. He's just said, you're clean, disciples. But now he says, but I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. See, the disciples didn't fully get it yet. We saw that last week. They don't know exactly what Jesus is talking about, what he's about to do. They don't get that he's about to die on the cross for them, that he's about to be resurrected from the dead. But it's so crucial to Jesus that he tells them before all this takes place that none of it has caught him by surprise. Nothing over this next 24 hours, his betrayal, his arrest, his beating, his crucifixion, none of that was put on him. He voluntarily was laying down his life. And so he makes more clear what he's saying here in verse 21. He realizes that they're not all clean, that even though they all walked with him and they followed him, they weren't all really his. So he says in verse 21, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit 
And he testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. It's hard to imagine any greater contrast to the love of Jesus than the betrayal of a friend, a betrayal of someone you've walked with. It was so shocking that the disciples in the gospel of Matthew, it says that they all looked around and they all began to say, is it, is it I, Lord? Am I the betrayer? Is it I, Lord? Is it, is it I? This morning, I believe that's the question that we all need to ask ourselves. Is it I, Lord, am I the betrayer? Because the reality is that very few of us, I think, would place ourselves in the same category as Judas Iscariot. Most of us see Judas as this especially heinous, deplorable person that, that, that betrayed Jesus, that we aren't like him. He's the worst of the worst. If, if you don't believe me, think about this. How many of you have really a really good friend named Judas? We got like one, which is awesome. Great for him. But rarely do people name their kid Judas anymore because Judas is synonymous with betrayer in the same way that Benedict Arnold is synonymous in our country with a traitor, a betrayer. Judas, none of us want to be that guy. And if you look in the New Testament, uh, throughout the rest of the New Testament, anytime it lists the apostles, Judas always comes last. And what does it always say? The betrayer. None of us want to be that guy. But I think as we, if we rightly understand the nature of what Judas did, we will see that we are all prone to do the same. And so this morning, I want us to think about what does Judas do in this text? Number one, put very simply, Judas betrayed Jesus. Judas betrayed the Son of God, whom Colossians describes as the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, by whom and for whom all things are created. He betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. That word betray literally means to deliver over, to free one's hands of someone or something, to deliver someone over, to get rid of their power. It shows up throughout the Bible. So if you go all the way back into the book of Genesis, we're introduced to a, a guy named Joseph. If you're here this summer, uh, we're going to study Joseph's life more in depth as we walk through Genesis. But, but in short, he was a young man who was loved by his father. As he began to grow up, he began to have dreams of his older brothers all bowing down to him. And in a move that wasn't so smart, he declared his dreams to his brothers. Well, older brothers did what any older brothers would do. They said, who is this kid? How dare he do this? And in the text says, over time, what did they do? They betrayed him. They delivered him over into slavery so that this prospect of his power would no longer be over them. They betrayed him. A little later in the book of Judges, we're introduced to a couple named Samson and Delilah. Samson was a, a warrior for Israel, and Delilah, who he was infatuated with, was one of Israel's enemies. She was a Philistine. To Delilah and the Philistines, Samson and his power was a problem. And so she enticed Samson. And over time, what did she do? She betrayed him. She handed him over. She rid herself and her people of his power over their lives. That is the idea of betrayal. To take someone you're in relationship with, someone you should be committed to, and to use them, and then to push away their influence and presence from your life. You say, why would Judas do this? Well, we don't know the full motives of his heart. 
We don't know the progression of Judas' sin, but here's what we do know by the outcome. We know that Judas did not love Jesus. He walked with Jesus, he used Jesus, but he did not love Jesus. Unlike all the rest of the disciples, Jesus was not his Lord and authority. Jesus was a way to more money. Jesus was a way to feed his greed. Jesus was a way to feed his materialism and his quest for power and ambition. But Judas did not love Jesus. And as soon as he had the opportunity, he used him. And then what does he do? He tries to free his hands, to deliver him over, to get rid of Jesus' authority over his life. So this morning, as you think about what Judas did, is that not the essence of what the Bible calls sin? To say this, God, even though you've given me all things, even though I owe you all things, I don't need you. I can be the authority of my life. I don't want your hands over my life, so therefore I'm gonna push you away to do whatever I want to do, to seek whatever I think is going to make me happy. Judas thought money would make him happy. I would imagine some of you in this room think success with your job is going to make you happy, that having a perfect family is going to make you happy, that getting into the right school is going to make you happy. We all do that apart from the grace of God. We all look to Jesus and say, I'll use you as long as I need you, but ultimately I want to be the king of my own life. And we betray Jesus. We push him to his side. We lay aside his authority. What makes this betrayal so, so heartbreaking, so, so grievous, is that Judas owed everything to Jesus, and so do we. And yet, he turns around and he does the exact opposite. He doesn't love him, he doesn't serve him. He uses him and then kicks him to the side. Verse 18, he says this, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Jesus is quoting here Psalm 41 verse 9 where David is talking about the pain of a close friend who betrays him. I would imagine in this room that that many of you have experienced the gut punch of betrayal, of having someone close to you, someone that you're committed to, someone you've poured your life into, turn around and, 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 and betray you in some way. The picture that he's painting is, is a master with his horse. This master feeds the horse everything. It says that he eats my bread. He eats from the master's hand everything. But as soon as he full, he's full, what does he do? It says that he lifts his heel against him. He kicks him. Do you realize that that is what we do to God? If it's painful for a friend to do, imagine the God that created you. He has provided everything that you are, everything that you have. It's all come from his hand. A lot of us like to think, I've earned this. I've earned my job or I've earned this. No, everything you have, everything you are has been given to you from the master's hand. He's given you, given you your money. He's given you all your, your intellectual abilities. He has given you your job. He's given you your family. He's given you your money. He's given you all things. And yet when we eat and when we're full, what do we do? We buck up against him. We say, thanks, but I reject your authority. I'm going to live as ever I want to live. I'm going to chase what I want to chase. You need to see that this betrayal that Judas does of Jesus is the same cosmic betrayal each one of us have done. We've all sinned. We've all bucked up against the authority of God. And this breaks the heart of Jesus. I found that really intriguing. Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen. 
Jesus knew Judas's heart, and yet what does it say? It says that it troubled his spirit. It grieved him to his core. Jesus had poured his life into Judas. Judas had walked along with him for three years. It grieved his heart that he, instead of receiving Jesus, instead of loving Jesus, he was using him. It broke Jesus' heart. I realized this morning that this is uncomfortable to think about, but I wonder this morning, have each of you come to the point where you have realized, I'm just like Judas. I'm just like him. I've laid aside God's authority. It's not just the sin of others that's the problem. It's my sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. Have you come to the point where you've said, Jesus, I don't want to just use you. I'm not just gonna use you for this or that. I'm not gonna just use you for your teaching. Jesus, I want to love you. I want to serve you in your kingdom. I wanna give you my life. This is so important today. Perhaps you're a Christian, but there are some small areas of your life that, that you look at and you say, well, Jesus, you can be authority over all these, but you cannot be authority over this. This is my area. Your authority stops here. You may look at those things and say, well, that's just a small thing. Well, well do you think that Judas just jumped to, hey, I'm going to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver? No. I guarantee in Judas's life, it happened like in all of our lives. It started with something small, just a little bit of greed. A little bit of desire to get ahead. Jesus, this isn't that big of a deal. Let me just take a little bit here. But then that sin, what does it do? It grows. James chapter 1, verse 14 says this. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. It starts with something small. I wonder this morning in this room, how many of you have Jesus been putting his thumb on that little bit of lust? How many of you have Jesus been pointing out that little bit of anger, that little bit of bitterness, that little bit of unforgiveness, that little bit of pride, that little bit of materialism? You've said, no, it's not that big of a deal. Do you see in this passage how sin grows? It is so important this morning, and my prayer for you is that you would see that Jesus loves you. Him pointing out those areas where you've turned your back on him is out of love. He wants you to come to him this morning. He wants you to trust him. He wants you to give him that rightful place in your life. Hidden sin is the most dangerous kind of sin, which is what leads us to our second point, and that is this. Judas deceived the other disciples. Not only did he betray Jesus, but he deceived the other disciples. The most interesting aspect of this text for me this week has been the response of the disciples. I want you to read it with me again. Verse 21 says, After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now listen to what happens in verse 22. The disciples looked at one another uncertain of whom he spoke. The NIV translate, translates it this way. The disciples were at a loss. They had no clue who Jesus was talking about. I want you to think about that. If you're a fan of, of art and you look at medieval art, almost every time you look at a piece of art of Jesus and his disciples, if you've ever tried, it's very easy to pick out Judas. Or, uh, John, every piece of artwork, Judas, while Peter may have his, his, uh, his fishing net or uh, John looks very holy and loving, Peter is always painted differently. He's either dark 
or he has a mean scowl on his face, you can easily tell, oh, that guy's different than all the rest. I want you to think about this. If Judas was so shady, if Judas was so dark and blatantly evil, why is it that none of the other disciples knew it was him that Jesus was talking about? Have you ever thought about that? When Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me, it says that they begin to look at one another. Uh, Peter looks at John. John looks at Andrew. Andrew looks at Philip. But did you notice that not one of them says anything about Judas? Why is that? The answer is very, very simple. It is because Judas looked and acted and behaved and talked just like the rest of them. He looked just like them. In fact, the fact that he was over their money that they put him in charge of the resources means that he was probably seen as the most trustworthy of the disciples. In a book by uh, Greg Ogden, he makes this point about Jesus by by highlighting a fictitious letter to Jesus about his disciples from a, a group of management consultants. The letter says this. It says, Dear Sir, thank you for submitting the resumes of the 12 men you have picked for management positions in your endeavor. It is our opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in background, education, and vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise you are undertaking. Simon Peter is emotionally unstable and given to fits of temper. Andrew has absolutely no qualities of leadership. The two brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, place personal interest above company loyalty. Thomas demonstrates a questioning attitude that would tend to undermine morale. We feel that it is our duty to tell you that Matthew has been blacklisted by the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus definitely have radical leanings. One of the candidates, however, shows great potential. He's a man of ability and resourcefulness. He meets people well, has a keen business mind, has contacts in high places. He's highly motivated, ambitious, and responsible. We recommend Judas Iscariot as your right-hand man. All of the other profiles are self-explanatory. We wish you success in your new venture. Now that, of course, is meant to be funny. But it does tell us, and it shows us a picture of this dangerous reality. You see, from all outer appearances, Judas was just like the rest of the disciples. He was just his job, just like the other 11. He had left his home. He had left his family. He had left his job to serve and minister alongside Jesus. For three years, he had heard Jesus' teachings. For three years, he had seen Jesus' miracles. For three years, think about this, he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom. For three years, he healed people. For three years, he cast out demons. From all external appearances, Judas looked like a disciple, but he did not belong to Jesus. Outwardly, he looked the same, but inwardly, he was far from grace. Do you realize this morning, church, that the same is true of the church today? It's interesting. I'm so grateful the scriptures provide us with so many pictures of how far people can go from God and yet be saved. But you need to know that it also provides us this illustration of how close someone can be to Jesus and yet be entirely lost. Think about this. 
Matthew 13, verse 24, Jesus highlights this reality in a parable that he gives to the crowd. He's talking about his kingdom, and he says, my kingdom could be compared to a farmer who goes and, and sows wheat in his field. When he goes to sleep, an enemy comes into that field, and he, he sows tares or, or weeds, and, and those weeds and that wheat grow up together. He says, my kingdom is like that. Wheat and tares are totally different. The wheat represent the children of God, those who have been washed by Jesus, those who have put their trust in him, those who are his. The tares are those who have not. They don't belong to Jesus. They're not children of God. They're two entirely different kinds of plants, wheats and tares. But if you've ever seen a wheat and a tear, is there any difference? No. The outward eye as they look at wheat and tear, they look completely identical. He ends the parable in this way. He says, let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. In other words, what he's saying here is while the tares may be able to present themselves as wheat today, there will be a day where God makes a clear distinction between them and what is real. Jesus is making a, a, a giving us really a warning this morning. He's saying it is an entirely different thing for you to come in and to sit in these pews every Sunday, to go through the motions and to look to the park. It's entirely different to you for you to do that and for you to be truly changed by Jesus Christ, for you to love him, for you to have a heart that desires him, for you to have a heart that has been cleansed. It is entirely possible to be involved in a growing, healthy church and be living your part, doing your thing, and not be in Christ. It is entirely possible to be a preacher of God's word and to not be his. It's entirely possible to be a community group leader, a deacon, a choir member, a youth in, a, in our youth group, a musician, a Bible teacher, a servant leader in the kids' ministry. It's entirely possible to do all the outward activities that look like a disciple and remain a stranger of God's amazing grace. Friends, this is a warning. You say, Ryan, that is an uncomfortable. I know. I've been dealing with this text all week. But I ask you this, what would be more comfortable to hear this message today and to respond to God or to hear it when you stand before Jesus on the day of judgment and he, you hear these words, I did not know you. I'm not saying these things to scare you. I'm saying these things so that each one of us will do an honest evaluation of our own heart. Has your heart truly been washed and cleansed by Jesus? Have you ever truly come to him and said, forgive me of my sin, Jesus, my life. You, but I've not wanted your authority. Instead of that, I'm turning from that. I want you to be the Lord of my life. Not just my consultant that I listen to when it matches up with what I want to do, but my Lord, my Savior, my love. Give me a new heart. This morning, as your pastor, I cannot tell you what your condition before the Lord is. But the Bible says the Spirit of God can. Romans chapter 8 says this, the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. 
The question this morning is not, are you a hypocrite? Are you a betrayer? The answer for every single one of us is yes, we are. The question is, have you been cleansed? Do you have a vibrant relationship with Jesus? Does his spirit bear witness with your spirit? I will tell you this, my mind doesn't always bear witness that I'm a child of God. There are many days where I see the depth of my sin and I think to myself, how can I be his? I see the ugliness of my sin and I think, how can I be his? My mind doesn't always connect. But here's the thing. When I hear the words, Jesus is Lord, when I hear the words that Jesus is my only hope, that Jesus is Savior, that Jesus has died for my sin and resurrected, I want you to know that my heart sings. My mind doesn't always connect, but my heart sings. His spirit bears witness with your spirit that you are a child of God. And it's why you can cry out, Abba, Father. In another place in John 15, Jesus says, another way you can know you are his is by the fruit produced in your life. I'll ask you this, how are you at doing in the growing the fruit of repentance? Is repentance a daily deal where you see your sin and you confess your sin and you, you turn to Christ relying on his grace? How are you doing at the fruit of obedience? Where Jesus has called you to do something, do you do it? What about the fruit of the Spirit? Galatians 5 says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Examine your heart. Are you growing in this fruit? Does your heart sing when you think about Jesus and who he is and what he's done? Are you his? It is important that we ask this question because at the end of the text, we see the end of the road for Judas. Here at the very end, we see this third point. Judas reaped the darkness of his betrayal and deception. Verse 23 says, one of his disciples, Jesus' disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him. This is such a Simon Peter move, isn't it? He motioned to him to ask Jesus whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of of Simon Iscariot. Now, because of the cultural differences between our day and that day, I think it's, it's hard for us to understand the significance of what Jesus does here. In that culture, to be the first person to receive that bread was a sign of deep friendship, of love, and of honor. Think about this. Jesus had already demonstrated his love to Judas over and over again. He had given him truth. He had given him his word. He had washed his feet. He was going to die for him on the cross. And it's as if Jesus is giving Judas one more chance. He says, let me show you just one more time of the love that I have for you. He dips it and he hands it to Judas. But as we know from the text, By this point, Judas had rejected Jesus so many times that his heart was so hard, it says, that Satan entered into him. Verse 27, then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why Jesus had said to this. Remember, it's only John who's leaning against Jesus that knows this. Some thought because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out. 
Friends, in this text, we see a process that is revealed in the scriptures, and it's a very scary process. The process goes like this. A person hears the word of God. They hear the good news. They hear the love of Christ. They they hear the word of God, but what do they do? They harden their heart. The word of God comes again. Their heart's already hard, but what do they do? They harden it even more. The word comes again and they harden it again. But there is a point, as we see in this text, you need to understand this morning, there is a point of no return. Where you, what you were unwilling to do at one point, you no longer can do in responding to Jesus. The, the, the words that have stuck with me all week are those last words, and it was night. You need to understand that it will always be night when we turn our back on Christ and walk away from his offer of love, mercy, and forgiveness. For Judas, this was the beginning of an eternal night. Because we read this, that before this night was over, Judas went and he got his 30 pieces of silver. He got the one thing that he thought would make him happy apart from Jesus. And what happened? He was just as empty as before. In fact, not only was he empty, but he was full of guilt that he couldn't do anything to get rid of. And so it says that Judas, before even Jesus was crucified, right in those hours that Judas went and hanged himself. He had nothing within him to bear the guilt of what he had done. The money that had promised happiness was a dead end. I can tell you this, I've walked with many people who have walked on roads that they think will make them happy apart from Jesus. The road of success, the road of pleasure, the road of work, the, work of, the road of recognition. Friends, at the end of the road, it's the same thing. Emptiness, and you still have guilt that you can do nothing with. For Judas, it led to his suicide. He, but here's the thing. As gruesome as his suicide was, Acts 1 tells us that he hung himself, but either the branch broke or the, the rope broke, but he fell headlong and his bowels burst open. It gives us this graphic depiction. But as gruesome as that is, it's not as gruesome as the reality that when he committed suicide that night, he entered into eternal darkness, an eternity of separation from God in a real place called hell. Judas is the greatest example of lost opportunity that has ever existed. He was around Jesus all day long. He heard about Jesus all day long, but he never received God's grace. And you have, hey, I don't know where you're at spiritually. I know that many of you are here and you have heard about Jesus. You've been around him a million times. You've heard about the love that Jesus has for you a hundred times. You've heard about what he did on the cross, that he took the punishment for your sins, that he made available to you life, everlasting life, forgiveness. You've heard it a hundred times, but you've hardened your heart. Over and over again, you've heard the good news of the gospel and you've hardened your heart. You need to hear this morning that you are not guaranteed another opportunity. There is a point of no return. Where the more that you harden your heart, in this passage it says it's not a neutral thing when you harden your heart to the word of God. It is satanic. There will be a point of no return. And I am begging you this morning, may you receive the good news of what Jesus has done for you with joy. May you stop hardening your heart. And may you turn to him 
so that you can be his for this day and for eternity. If you're here and you're a Christian, I want to ask you this question. Where are those areas that you are deceiving others and you're just going through the motions? You look good on the outside, but what is within is not matching up. You know it. You know you need to be confess that sin. You know you need to bring that into light. You know you need to walk with brothers and sisters in Christ that are here to help you. What areas are you not obeying Jesus? What areas have you said, you can have these parts of my life. You can be my consultant, but you can't have that. You need to know that Jesus will never grow you past where you've said no. Where are we this morning? My hope and prayer for every single one of you this morning is not to scare you, not to make you doubt your salvation. I want every single one of you in this morning to walk out of this room being able to say, I know that Jesus is my Lord and Savior. My heart sings. I want you to be able to, to, to sing with me in just a moment. We're going to close the, the service with the, the song, Blessed Assurance. Excuse my own singing, but I want you to be able to say, this is my song. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God. Born of his spirit, washed by his blood. This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. Is that your story? Is that your song? It can be today. Would you go to Jesus? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I am very aware, Lord, that I, while I look at this congregation and I know these people, I don't know their heart. But your spirit does. And so my prayer this morning for every single person is that they would walk out of this room with that blessed assurance that they know you, that they've been cleansed, not that they're perfect, not that they haven't been a betrayer or a hypocrite, but instead as they've seen their own heart's condition of sin that they've turned to you and they've said, Jesus, wash me, make me clean. That they've turned to you and said, I want you to be the Lord and Savior, not just my consultant, but my CEO of my life. I want to know you. Give me a new heart, Jesus. Oh God, I pray that every single person in this room would be able to walk, that they would not harden their hearts. Would you protect every person against the evil one this morning? It terrifies me to think that someone in this room who has heard the gospel, has hardened their heart, would come to that point of no return. So I ask you, God, would you break their hard heart this morning? Would you show us those areas where we've deceived others, where we're not really walking in the light? Show us those areas of life where we've betrayed you. We've said, no, Jesus, you, you can't be there. And as we see these things, may we run to you, knowing that you love us, 
that you desire to have a relationship, that you desire to forgive us and to give us abundant life. This morning, why don't you just take some time? We want to give you this moment of of quiet just to be able to speak to God, to be honest with him, to ask his spirit to bear witness with your spirit that you are his. Does your heart sing when you think of who Jesus is and what he's done? Be honest with God this morning. Confess those areas where you've been deceptive. Confess those areas where you've pushed him him and his authority out of your life. Receive the, the grace that is available in Jesus. Take this time. I'll come and close this in just a moment. Thank you.